Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Alex and Christian Giebert. Today, we have a very special cantata. It contains many moments of Bach, I would say, and that is BWV 150, Nach Herr Verlanget mich. And Christian and I have decided that there are just too many moments in this to pick just one. So we'll return to a format that we used once way back in our first season when we did BWV 131, and we will split this into two episodes, but focus on one moment from each movement. Now, since there are seven movements, that means we split those up between two episodes. So today we'll look at four wonderful little moments from movements one through four. All right, Alex, now we're coming to a cantata, which I'm a little bit embarrassed to say that I carried around a score of in my backpack for, I think, six months, just because it was in the early days of the podcast, and it was on my short list of Bach works to focus on because I knew it was kind of a goldmine of so many different things that were in there. For whatever reason, we didn't do it in our first two years of this podcast, but here we are now finally getting there to a cantata that was, for a while, number one on my list of my favorite Bach cantatas. I don't know if it still is, but it's up there. And the moment of Bach that I carried around in my backpack before and at the start of when we were even having the idea for our A Moment of Bach podcast was the Leite mich choral section at the beginning of one of the choruses in this cantata. Let's begin with a brief introduction about what this cantata is. First of all, it's one of the oldest ones. That means that its style will be a lot more German. It won't be this sort of formula that Bach arrived at later in his life where we have one grand opening chorus or choral fantasia followed by a bunch of arias and recitatives and then a closing brief harmonization. This won't be like that. This will instead be brief vignettes of quickly switching moods depending on the text and during a chorus every line might have completely different music the arias will be a little bit more structured but other than that it just flows this might be the earliest Bach cantata that we have the musical score for it might have been an Arnstadt cantata from 1707 that's before Bach was in Weimar before he was even in Mühlhausen it's early earlier in his life I guess he would have been about 22 The words of this cantata come mostly from Psalm 25, and that's true of most of the choral movements. Then there's some anonymous poetry between, but we open with an orchestral sinfonia. An 
instrumental prelude. The small ensemble for this cantata consists of two violins and the bass part, the continuo part, and the choir, but with the notable addition of a bassoon, which has its own written out part and does not always double the bass part, the cello, etc., which is interesting. Sometimes it's barely noticeable. Other times, the bassoon has a very independent part. I've heard of bassoonists performing this as like part of a recital too. So it's part it's partly a feature for the bassoon. Yeah, it kind of makes you wonder about the role of the bassoon in the continuo in general in Bach because a lot of times Baroque ensembles will just have the bassoon double the continuo line with the cello and the bass, which was the violon, the, the big stand-up bass of the time. Yeah. So, but here, when Bach writes it out, Sometimes, as you say, it's like totally separate, but other times it's like Bach is just orchestrating. And so he like puts the bassoon in for some of the music and he takes it out for other parts. And it's usually pretty figure outable where it goes, you know, like it, it comes in when the violins enter, but if it's just continuo and voices, the bassoon usually lays out, at least in this first movement, or I should say the second movement, which is the first one that uses voices but but yeah if we look back at the symphonia it's just as you said christian two violin parts written out and then a continual part and the bassoon part which in the case of the very first movement here the bassoon part really does just double the continual i kind of wonder if maybe there's a independent bassoon part simply because the bassoon was in a, in a different key or the, the bassoon was a transposed instrument for whatever reason this bassoon part in the manuscript is written in another key maybe it was just a peculiar way the baroque bassoon was that's interesting. And I wonder if maybe the fact that he had to write out a different part anyway made him just think, well, if I'm going to write out a different part anyway, I might as well also make it different. It, but it's like so interestingly different. Because I mean, not to jump ahead too much, Christian, but because we're talking about the bassoon, like in the second movement, I said it plays during when the strings played, but it doesn't always double the continuo part when it does that, though. No. And there's a part specifically during this fugal section near near the very end of the second movement where it is doubling the bass voice, at least, pretty much, but then it's like ornamenting, where the bass voice would have like, bum, 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 bum. Then the bassoon has like, dun, dun, da, 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 dun, dun, bum. You know, like, it's adding stuff. And I think that's really cool. And during that section, the continuo, by the way, is not exactly that either. It it's, It is that line, but it's even less ornamented than the bass thing. It's just, duh. Dun, 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 instead of the repeated note. Particularly in measure 48 is where I'm looking, Christian. It's a pretty remarkable thing for Bach. Yes, there's three different bass lines. Yeah, but it's the same line, though. That's what's really weird. It's not counterpoint. Yeah. This is one line of music. So the continuo. And the bass line is... And then the bassoon part is... Like, it's, it's different. It's more active. Yeah. It's not just that it calls into question the role of the bassoon and how it sometimes maybe did not strictly double the continuo or switched off between that and the bass part, but also like the potentiality of that being more of a florid, floridly decorated part as decided upon by the performer in the time period. Maybe bassoonists like did more ornamentation and that's just like part of what that instrument was adding to the ensemble. But this is like a written out version of that, you know? We do know from some sources, like there's a Telemann source where I think Telemann himself wrote out the ornamentation on one instrumental line. And we 
we know that they really did add a lot. So you have to wonder if that was sort of legal for the bassoonist to do and not match entirely in a more normal setting instead of this one where it's actually written out for that bassoonist. But actually this isn't completely uncommon in Baroque music and music theorists have a term for this. We call it heterophony, just one of the types of texture. You got one thing by itself, that's monophony. It's all just Greek, one sound. And then polyphony is many sounds and homophony is like uh, the same sounds together, like a chord, like a guitar chord. But this is heterophony, which means that one single line is being realized differently by a different instrument or voice. It's very common in non-Western music around the world. It's less common in Western music, but here it is. Right. It happens sometimes in the continuo of Baroque music. Back to the opening symphonia. We hear a motif that's a very sad descending chromatic line. It's almost pleading and crying. This is a setup for the following chorus. It's not just that line either, but it's everything. All the motivic material in this short little introductory movement gets reused in movement two. You could almost think of it as just an extended instrumental introduction with a break. Mm -hmm. Sometimes Bach did this where he, in his earlier cantatas, where he just made that introduction separate. Other times, like in 131, it's continuous. It has an introduction, it goes straight into the chorus, but the beginning chunk is clearly an introduction. And this one, they're just separated right. by a, mo a moment of silence. And sure enough, when we hear the choir enter, we now see that the text matches the mood entirely. And we set the mood before we even introduce the text. It's a really Baroque technique, really. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let not mine enemies triumph over me. What's funny is that the first line says, lift up my soul unto the Lord, basically. But the chromatic musical line pulls downward, doesn't it? Right, but the continual line's going up most of the time. And then also, really, if you look at the score, this becomes easily revealed. But as you listen... You could tell that the registers are being added higher and higher and higher. It starts with bass, tenor, alto, soprano. The cinematography of the video by Netherlands Box Society is perfect in this wonderful moment mm -hmm. in the video. Gotta watch it. It's just, I mean, it's it's subtle and it's it's nothing special, but it's just good filmmaking. The way that the uh, different singers come into frame in this moment. That's Bach t painting that text, right? And, the, you know, the German-speaking listeners will tell us at this point that it's not really saying literally lift up. I, th I don't think that's, that's not the precise translation because it's more of a poetic translation. You take that with a grain of salt. There is still, on the other hand, that octave leap at the beginning that goes up, that they all do, all the voice parts That's do. True. So it, there is still that feeling that we get in a lot of sadder opening movements to Bach cantatas of rising up towards God and then falling down almost inevitably.
Yeah, and, and you know, it's like with psalms, there's, if you, if you read the psalms, there are a few different types of psalms. Some of them are lament types, some of them are praise, you know, and with a psalm like this, with its down character, with its, it's a sad one. The first line might be about lifting up your soul, but the rest of the, the psalm is about, I shouldn't say sad, it's more of a, um, a plea for protection, right? So it, it focuses on the strife of the world and also on death and hell and how we want God to protect us from that. So Bach is taking these two elements, which is that side of it, that darkness, plus the lifting up of the soul thing, which might be more hopeful. And he, what does he give us to make both of those happen at the very beginning of this movement? He gives us something that works for both. He gives us that dark flavor of the music with the minor key and the twisty chromatic turns that are pulling down slowly, but at the same time he's lifting up the soul the whole time by adding these higher and higher and higher voice parts. It's just, it's just so simply brilliant. Brilliant in its simplicity. Yeah, and, and I think also, speaking of the German, what it really, what he's really setting is verlanget, which is more like long, I long for. Really the first sentence could be also read as for you lord i long that's another thing we see a lot with bach is the setting of longing with these these slower more chromatic passages that's true bach keeps us on our toes here because this doesn't last long until we get to the next line my god and then we have a break there and then when we are more hopeful the music moves into an allegro more cheerful section ich hoffe And there we are saying, I trust, I trust in thee. The third part is a wonderful soprano aria. Our text is, Yet I am and shall remain content, though cross, storm, and other trials may rage here on earth, death, hell, and what must be. And those things really are happening in the music. Yeah. Because we have this nice sort of violent violins there. Bar seven, at the cross and the storm. It's not actually very common for a Baroque composer to write for a violin section to play more than one note at a time, which is what string players call double stops or triple stops. Uh, it happens not very common in Baroque music because Baroque music is usually so linear. And these string instruments are asked usually to play one note at a time. But here, it calls for a special effect and he uses one. I just love the sort of through composed nature of this aria. Mm. You know, it's not, I mean, there's some little licks in the continual part that are that hold the whole thing together but it's nice and short it's not stuck in some da capo form that bach would eventually start relying on later in his career it just says the text once that's it that's all it needed i mean it does a couple of little repetitions of certain words like rage uh, trials rage cross and storm you know and then of course there's the um death and hell which is like like it's like death hell death hell you know it's like really intense for a second
then right remains right, though uh, though I'm in strife and all this. Whatever is right remains right. And when he says Recht ist, when that happens, it's the opposite of the death hell thing. It now is an upward interval. Yeah, and a very stable right. one, a solid yep, stable, one. Stable, not that's right. It's not the uh, the um, diminished seventh. It's a fourth going. The other out. ones are yeah. The other ones are that classic diminished seventh thing that Bach loves to do with death hell stuff. And this is these are perfect fourths all of a sudden with the right. That those are those are correct. <laughs> those are perfect. You could even say. And then the, th- the thing just ends right there. It doesn't need to be long. Yep. It doesn't go back and repeat a section. Like he always does later. Yep. Especially when he was more influenced by Italians. I love that. I love that it just is so straightforward. Right. When I was following along the score at this, I almost was like, wait, am I missing a page? <laughs> Since we're talking so much about score here, listener, we will link the exact score that we're using so that you can see what we're looking at. And we're on page 10 right now. If you like to follow along in a musical score, I'd highly recommend looking at this. It's really interesting. And here we are at the moment of moments for me. Yeah. I got to sing this once, oh. and in my I sang the bass part, which was a little low for me, but it was what was needed. But I didn't know. I had studied my part. I hadn't done a lot of score study. We started this movement, and there's this magical feeling happened in rehearsal when I sang the first measure with my section. But then the, the scale kept going up without me. Yeah. Right. And that, that's what you're going to talk about, right, Christian? Oh, yeah. These first yeah. four bars. Yep. Yeah. Well, the immediate tone that is set by just the first couple of measures in a row is not really classical sounding. I guess I'd it sounds, say it sounds Renaissance. Old. Yeah, it's old. It sounds it's... like Renaissance. It absolutely sounds like straight, just middle Renaissance vocal music. And in, in fact, it is that because, I mean, it, there are written out parts that might not have existed and there was no continuo back then. But the harmony in this passage does not follow the rules of classical harmony that we would expect out of basically after 1600, 1650. That whole idea of a harmonic progression that moves forward in time that starts in the Baroque era and is especially true of the classical era and Romantic era, it doesn't happen here. So we start in B minor. That's fair enough. We've been in B minor in that first measure. Yep, this whole time, actually. <laughs> yeah. Second measure, though, F sharp minor. That's what makes this sound old right away, because a composer of the Baroque era would try to use harmony to their advantage and make this F sharp major so that it felt like it was going somewhere else. Well, the, the thing that really sells that theory is the second note of the tenor entrance and the second measure yeah absolutely which is a g sharp which makes it sound like f sharp minor because that doesn't belong in b minor you can't in baroque music you can't just have a g sharp sitting there like that without also raising the a going up you know yeah so so in fact that that second measure in the old style instead of thinking of them as chords it just makes it sound dorian which is a mode of earlier music 
Yeah, and by the, and by the way, it's it's important to remark that this isn't like oh, this is early Bach, therefore it sounds closer to the Renaissance. It's not that would not be understanding the time scale. No, the Renaissance was already over. <laughs> right. It's like it's not like yeah, the Renaissance had been over for a long time. Bach is late Baroque, really. It's not like this was in vogue. This was clearly a throwback style for Bach, even though he was young. He doesn't ever do this later in his life, which shows that he probably thought even even evoking something this old was now old. But we get to that second measure, and it just that's why it sounds that way. It sounds Dorian. And it doesn't work harmonically to call this anything but B minor, so we'll just move on to the third chord, which also doesn't work with the more classical tonality either, because that third chord is A, A major. You're not allowed to use that chord in B minor unless you're moving basically straight to D, which is related to B minor very closely. But that's not what happens again, because on the fourth bar, the third and fourth function just here like the first and second, where we move up by a fifth. After that, the next four bars are kind of roughly workable in classical harmony, though. But those first four are so foreign that they really evoke the early style. Another reason why it doesn't sound classical, Alex, I believe that this is the reason. The first and third bar, after them, we move up by fifth. We aren't progressing up by fourth. When you move up by fourth, like from F sharp major to B minor, which is what we would expect, there's a sense of forward momentum. Here we're moving up by fifth. This is a sense of moving backwards in a way or not moving forward, let's say. So there's a sort of just stasis going on here of flattening out of everything. Yeah, but doesn't that kind of contradict the text? Like he wasn't, in other words, he wasn't using the harmonic stasis to to paint this text. It's lead me, it's lead me in that truth. Yeah, that's because there's another thing that's going on that's extremely Yeah, noticeable. I was going to say, you're, you're burying the lead here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like the really interesting it's thing. It's not the harmony. Yeah, so the words, yeah. so let's say what the words are. Lead me in thy truth and teach me. This entire passage is simply just lead me in your truth. The first phrase that's repeated over and over again, lie to me, is simply lead me. And we are not led by a sense of harmonic progression because actually I think Bach wouldn't have thought of it that way. I guess he would have just, if he was using easily analyzable classical chords like Mozart and Haydn would go on to do, then I think there'd be too much stopping and starting feeling going on because those things often terminate in a period of rest. And what Bach wanted was actually a, con a continuity of this line. Yeah, That's why we have this amazing effect happen, which this amazing ascent that goes beyond, that transcends voices, doesn't it? We start with a bass. Tenor. Alto. Soprano. And he's continued in the violin two. And then violin one. Its span transcends the voice range. And so it goes from the bass, and by the time it's up to the soprano, it's already past two octaves. Yeah. And as it continues up into the violins, it goes even higher than voices can sing at all. And when it goes all the way to the top of the violin one line, we have uh, a D, which corresponds to the next word, light mich in. And then at that point, it seems like the soprano takes over an octave lower. 
and it transfers down, but still goes up a little to that F sharp. So that's kind of how it sounds, because that first violin part doesn't move up linearly after that in a stepwise way. illusion or not really illusion it's kind of actually happening the effect is one of moving and pulling up and up and up and up and up it's remarkable i you don't really see anything else like this in this time period bach doesn't ever do this effect again to my knowledge none of his contemporaries really do it does kind of sound like renaissance choral music in a way but it that also is a lot freer and it doesn't really have this kind of pattern in it and because of the violins being added i can't think of anything else like this and it's pretty stunning it is truly remarkable it's it's a moment of Bach it's that it's that unique so it finally terminates on a half cadence where we finally get a progression which is allowed in classical harmony although still hearkening back to older music the Phrygian half cadence reading this wrong where that that violin note at the at that cadence is the seventh oh like it it lands on an e i'm glad you brought that up alex because i don't i've tried to figure this out before that no no one nobody does it in the most popular internet recordings i can't find anyone who's done that e now i looked in the manuscript it does look like an e in the first violin part but i guess we're assuming it's a typo but if you went up to an f sharp there be an Parallel octaves with the soprano. Yeah, and that doesn't work because the rest of the line isn't doubling the soprano, so that's not... It's hard to hear, but I believe what's happening in this in this recording, and I think in the Voces 8 recording, which is another great one you should check out online, listeners, this entire cantata, I believe most ensembles are going down to a C-sharp there. C-sharp, yeah. Because it's one of the only legal choices. It doesn't conflict with anything, anyone else. Also, I love the bassoon starting on the low B at the beginning of this movement. Yeah, it's not quite always the same, is it? Yeah. Part of the cool thing about the bassoon, I don't know if we've talked about ranges of continuo instruments before, but typically Bach has a floor of a C, a low C, which just makes sense because of organ pedal boards. I, I know they weren't all that standardized but at the time, but I think it was. it seems to be that he used that low C. It makes sense for the violon range and everything like that. That's basically where the floor is for the continual range because he writes out the bassoon part and because bassoons are able to reach one or two and i think at this i think at this era two more half steps below that c bach like absolutely avails himself of cool opportunities Hmm. for this by setting this whole thing in b minor and making sure that bassoon gets to hit that low note a lot and it's it's also worth saying that like the violon sounds an octave lower anyway so it's not like the bassoon actually can go lower than a violon it can't the violon can go almost an octave lower than it right but the point is, is that if the bassoon just doubled the continual line, it wouldn't get to access its lowest couple pitches. But Bach makes sure to write out those low pitches so that the bassoon can really sit there on the low pitches sometimes. Yeah, and the interesting difference that this has in heterophony from the continual bass line 
it has the la to mi rhythm and the bass line is just a half note and a quarter note so they are also different yep which is typical of how he uses the bassoon in the other choral movements too he he makes it hue closer to their rhythm sometimes even a little more as we said ornamented but usually the continual part has the most simplified rhythm yeah but but also check this out in on this first measure the bassoon has light to meet, but it stays on B. Yeah. But the basses don't stay. The bass, the basses right. don't even have that rhythm. The bassoon has the like missing bass part of light to meet. Oh yeah. Yep. Because the actual bass singers are already starting the magical ascent. Yeah. Pretty cool. Okay, so Alex, from this point on, we really pick up some steam, and the rest of the choral movement really chugs along with one notable, interesting violin thing that happens. Sometimes Bach is accused of writing his voice parts just like string instrumental parts. Here's an argument in favor of that <laughs> accusation, because at the beginning we have the leitemich, and then the violins transcend the voices by going above and beyond, and here we have Teglich Hara, and that motif is repeated amongst the voices, first in the soprano, then in the alto and tenor, and then, bizarrely, in the violins. In unison, yeah. Finally, basses after. So there's no clearer example in Bach, I think, of the fact that Bach was thinking, at least here, the instruments as an absolute equal to the voice. Even though they can't say the text, they are doing the text here. Yeah, that's true. And it's daily weight, right? Weight daily. On the word weight, of course, he puts the long note, very reminiscent of bleib bei uns. Stay. Stay gets the long note. Or I guess the word us in that one got the long note, but... Regardless, the thing that he does is use three repeated pitches. It's the same thing. I really like how the sense of waiting here is not does not make the music actually slow. It's not like he selected a slow music for this section. It's more like waiting with your foot tapping because you know, there's all these 16th notes going on. We are having some long notes in there on the word wait, but otherwise it's not a sad wait. It's more of an excited wait. Yes, yes, I love that. The way that Bach sets that as an excited wait before the way that he set the lifting up my soul thing as a very plaintive thing instead of something cheerful. It's just like, it's such a window into Bach the Christian. You know what I mean? Like, like he, he was probably trying to be as objective as he could, but at the same time, like, it's, it's his interpretation of how, not just his interpretation of scripture, but like how he emotionally felt about those passages of scripture. 
It really gives us a glimpse into not just his mind, but into like his soul. He was clearly so knowledgeable about all this text that you, yeah, you have to kind of assume that he had such a deep relationship with the, with the text. Let's hear all these moments from the first four movements of this cantata. First, the symphonia with its descending chromatic lines. beginning of the first chorus. And the cross and storm of the soprano aria. And the stepwise ascent of Lead Me from the following chorus. If this introduction to the first half of this amazing cantata has inspired you to hear the rest of that cantata, please visit the link that we've put in our episode description so you can see the Netherlands Bach Society performance. We also, as Christian mentioned, added a link to the score so you can follow along. We continue this two-parter next week in which we cover the final three movements of this cantata. We would encourage you to listen to the rest of this cantata because there are some real all-star moments in there and we will discuss them next week. Until next time, enjoy those moments.